From tagging jaguars in the Yucatan to unearthing new species in the far north of Canada, or even in New York Central Park, Richard Weiss seems to have been born to explore. Whilst people think that everything has been discovered, there is so much just at our feet that people haven't looked at. The host of TV's Born to Explore shares his passion for scientific discovery with us in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Another place you just can't miss when it comes to passions of a romantic nature is Paris. Coming up, friends from Paris share tips for finding just the right place to steal a kiss. It's the coolest place. It's the coolest secret garden in Paris. And Paris is perfect for strolling with your favorite travel partner as you recapture the magic and the atmosphere of midnight in Paris. Paris After Dark is very exciting because you can go everywhere, you feel safe, you can walk. It's very romantic, it's true. We're romancing the world in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The world really is full of romance of many kinds. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Elaine Cialino shares her favorite hidden gardens in Paris. And later, Richard Weiss describes how his scientific adventures have taught him to love the world. Let's start with a look at Paris by night. We're at 877-333-RICK. Paris is the city of light, but what about after dark? You know, we all go to Paris and we have a long list of great museums and palaces to see and so on. But save some energy for after dinner. It's a magnificent city after dark, and we're going to talk about that with a friend and fellow tour guide who works in Paris, Arnaud Servignan. Arnaud, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Hello. As a resident of Paris, how do you enjoy Paris after dark? I mean, it's famous as the city of light, but it's also a very romantic city. Well, you know, Paris is a city of light, and actually it's when it gets dark that it becomes the city of light. Well, that's it, isn't it? So you've got all the flood lighting. Even though it doesn't mean this at the origin, it's really because of the light now. It's all illuminated, so you really can walk everywhere. All the monuments are lit up. Paris after dark is very exciting because you can go everywhere. You feel safe. You can walk. It's very romantic. It's true. We have lots of strolls, lots of places, you know, planted with trees, Champs-Élysées, anywhere. Uh, What I'm thinking is... Well, first, start with a dinner, you know, when it's dark. Yeah. I mean, you want a kind of a, not an early dinner, a romantic late dinner. Yeah. And it can go for a while. We don't go, you know, for dinner before 8.30, so... Okay, so you, you could there. very likely be eating until 11 o'clock. Absolutely. Come out, 10.30, 11 o'clock. And I'm thinking of a place called Le Coupe Chou, which is uh, on the way up to the Pantheon, so on the left bank. You know, it's a very quaint little place. It's a restaurant which is in a, oh my gosh, maybe 14th or 15th century house, half-timbered, very low little ceilings, and they have like four little rooms inside. It's very cozy. They have a chimney. The what's, fire, what's the name of the restaurant? Le Coupe Chou. It literally means the cut cabbage. The cut cabbage, okay. Yeah, yeah you know the big shaver that was used in the former days? Big, long thing that you can cut the throats also, you know, okay, in criminal yeah. movies? Right. That's called a Coupe Chou. Okay. It's because the restaurant was owned by a barber shop. The uh, ambience that is created by the yes, restaurant is very yes, important. It's very old, chimney. It's just homey. It's, homey, uh, yeah. You know, and, and when it's cold, it's even better because it, the fire is on. So uh, I would start my evening there, very traditional food, great wine. And then that's it. You're done. You put back your coat and you come out. It's a very tiny little street. It's just off the um, Ecole Polytechnique, Polytechnical School. It's a very quaint district. And then you make your way, you know, up towards the Pantheon, narrow little streets. And then there's a corner here, and you just sit down. And if you're lucky, there might be a 1920 car passing by. So this is the restaurant that's in Midnight in Paris? Or this is the place? No, it's not the one, but it's close by. It sounds like it's you're close by. Right there. And basically, when Owen Wilson is waiting for the car, it's just right next to the Pantheon. It's a little street going up to Pantheon. So I was wondering where that area and, is, because uh, anybody who sees that movie, yeah. they want to go to that place. Yeah, it's a very nice. It's easy to find. It's just on the side of the Pantheon. I think the cool thing about that movie... Yeah. Midnight in Paris is it just inspires you to be out after dark in Paris Absolutely. and let your creative, romantic spirit go. Well, of course, you've got two sides. You know, you've got the narrow streets and you've got the large boulevards and also the river. Do not forget about the river. Is it safe to walk along the quay? It's very nice. And that's what I was going to advise is maybe a walk along the river, starting at uh, Le Pont Neuf, which is okay. at the end of the island. Right. Uh, you know, a beautiful statue of Henry IV there. It's, it's a gorgeous bridge, all illuminated. And you can see already the, the boats passing by. What's you know, the little the park right there in front of the, the statue? The Square du Vergalant. 
Yeah, no, the you Garden can sit- of the Green Lover. Is that what it's called? The yes. Garden of the Green Lover? Because I think one of the most beautiful places to be, especially after dark, is on the very tip of that island. Yes, that's As true. the river cuts by. It's nice. You can be there with your favorite travel partner. Yes. You're in a magnificent city, but it's also very intimate. Yeah, it is. So you just kiss first, and then you start walking, okay? Okay. <laughs> so um, you have basically to cross the river to okay. get on the left bank side. On the left bank. And you have the yeah. key, this big, uh, the, the bank of the river that used to be where the bums would sleep and so on, but now it's quite comfortable. And safe. Yeah, well, you still get, you know, a few. Well, when you get under the bridges, the reality is something. You There's know, a little reality. Well, let's there. stay back in the romanticism. You know? Okay, okay, we'll go, okay, go romanticism. <laughs> so you cross the bridge and then you walk down. You'll see some boats with big masts over there looking really old from right. the 19th century. And you start the walk and it's, it's really beautiful because you, you walk towards Notre Dame. You have the boats passing by. They In the flood of Notre Dame, so you see the exoskeletal nature of Gothic Absolutely. architecture. Yes. You've got these wonderful buttresses yes. and the windows and the gargoyles. Yes, you just walk by, literally, yeah? And you pass it, and you just walk behind, turn back, kiss again, admire the flying buttresses, you know, uh, and also little barges here. At the end, you arrive to uh, another bridge called Le Pont des Tournelles, where you have like a little barge with uh, a place to drink inside. So there are like floating cafes. Floating cafes. That are moored right there on the Seine. And, yes. And that's a romantic place to set for there's a drink. R- right there, there's one. The, the little bridge just on the, on the side of Notre Dame. Now, if you continue up, you get to sort of a park along the river, don't you? And there's little um, tiny theaters where they would have dance club meetings. You have to come up, you have to come up and, and walk and down again. There's no connection. Okay, but you can uh, no. continue up and there's actually like modern art and it's just a very yes. beautiful place for people. Yes, and there there's a place also, it, it's not far from the Institut du Monde Arabe, the Arabic World Institute. Right. So really at the end, you have passed the point of the Ile Saint-Louis at that point. And there, there is a kind of modern garden with sculptures. And also there is a little amphitheater where people are dancing. And it's so charming in the evening. They're dancing. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about midnight in Paris, or at least Paris after dark, with our Parisian tour guide friend, Arnaud Servignon. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Bill's on the phone from Tanawanda in New York. Bill, thanks for your call. Hello, Bill. Oh, I was wondering, uh, we are scheduling to go into Paris uh, in May. Yes. And my wife more or less fell in love with the city uh, when she saw Woody Allen's movie Midnight in Paris. Yeah, I loved and it too. they started walking down the Seine at night with the Eiffel Tower in the background. And, I mean, it was just one totally romantic scene mm-hmm. that we were just totally taken aback with. Because of that, we immediately started talking about going to Paris. <laughs> well, I, get, I think you have to go. <laughs> I think Woody Allen could have got yes. a little uh, thanks from the tourist board in Paris because mm-hmm. a lot of people, Bill, have been inspired to go to Paris because of that movie. I can see why. And it's uh, not all that unrealistic. You can have that magic. That's the thing that mm, I think Arno and I would like yeah. to stress, that if you just get out in the evening, and as Arno said, it's a safe city after dark. If you use exercise common sense, you're in a big city, you could find yourself some trouble. But if, if you just use common sense, I think it's very reasonable to be out. What time does the metro shut down, though? Because that is a concern uh, for a lot of I people. I think one o'clock. Know when the metro shuts down, because then you'll be stuck walking a long way or having to get a taxi. But the metro runs until after midnight, and you can get anywhere quick and safe. You know, talk to some locals, find out where some good points are that you might want to go for. Where's a great viewpoint at night if you want to sit and just enjoy the city? Great viewpoint? The best viewpoint is Eiffel Tower. But otherwise, you can go to the Sacre Coeur. There's a nice viewpoint there. The steps on Montmartre. Uh, Yes. With the Sacre Coeur floodlit behind you. Montmartre. Excuse me. Excuse me. Montmartre. There's an R at the end. (laughs) Thank you. Anyway, Bill, um, tell your wife, I mean, if you want to really enjoy and really get back into the the, the spirit of that movie, um, you should go to Montparnasse area where you have the Jingle Bar. That's where, you know, Hemingway met with uh, uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, Right next to the Jingle Bar, you have La Coupole. And all these little cafes are located by Montparnasse. That's really where all these people used to go in the 1920s. That's a terrific idea. But the Jingle Bar, it, it's it's not really a great place. Huh? I mean, it still exists, basically. Right. But you can find uh, that sort of uh, 1920s ambience in many yes. places around Paris. There's another place which I would advise you to go is La Closerie des Lilas. It's just behind the Luxembourg Garden. Uh, behind the Luxembourg, you have a big perspective going to the Observatory of Paris. And then just by the corner there, there is La Closerie des Lilas, where Hemingway used to write. Hemingway? Yeah, Hemingway. All right. He lived very close by. And at the top of the hour, still, does the Eiffel Tower have its electronic orgasm? 
<laughs> yes, yeah, on every every time. Yes, for every, five minutes. For now, five minutes at the top of every hour. Broke it down to five minutes. You know, yeah. the whole Eiffel Tower shivers with beautiful lights glimmering and yeah. going crazy. We and prefer saying sparkles. You know, sparkles. Uh, okay, so it sparkles for five minutes. It <laughs> shivers with delight. But we're talking about romantic <laughs> Paris after dinner. Yes, that's true. Hey, Bill, thanks for your call and. and uh, Take your wife over there and uh, make that midnight in Paris sort of uh, dream come true. Thank you. I, Thank I you, appreciate Bill. your comments. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good time. And Anne is on the phone in Sarasota, Florida. Anne, thanks for your call. I've had many midnight experiences in Paris, and I strongly recommend it. It's wonderful. Well, be more explicit. Tell me one of your midnight experiences in Paris. Okay. Uh, the last one, last May, was just going to around the Saint-Savran Church, a uh, yeah. very touristy area, having frites and red wine around midnight, just sitting in a little cafe with a friend. Uh-huh. And though it's a cheesy area, though it's not any not cheesy, but it's not uh, it's not Montparnasse and La Coupole, but at the same time, it's very very pleasant. And you're in Paris, and you have the Art Deco interiors of cafes, and mm-hmm. and it's just wonderful. And as a woman out close to midnight in Paris, uh, what advice would you give for other women who who might not feel comfortable in a big city alone after dark? If you've been in a city like New York or Paris or any large city, you go where the tourists are. I think to places that have people around. I wouldn't walk down a dark street. Right. Well, not necessarily tourists. You go where there's people. The Parisians yeah. are out in the full force. The point is we do not have dark streets Parisians are out. There are even bake shops open. I found the best bakery in Paris for music, Gerard Mulot. But, oh, yes, uh, Gerard Mulot. My goodness, you find the right uh, place. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Another place at midnight is the Slow Club on the Rue de Rivoli. They play jazz. Uh-huh. near what was the Samaritan department mm-hmm. store. Yes. There's beautiful jazz clubs that are very accessible yes. for tourists if yes. you if you have the yes. good information. You Absolutely. can pick up the uh, Periscope magazine at any yep. newsstand for if 50 cents or something and mm-hmm. have all that information. And it sounds like you're an adventurous traveler and you know how to really get the most out of Paris after dark. I try. All yes, right, thanks. Thanks for your Thank call. You. Okay, Thank bye you. now. Yes. Have a good day. Bye. I know it's almost too obvious, but you can take the bateau mouche. Yeah, bateau mouche or bateau parisien or uh, vedette du pont neuf. Uh, these are the classic river boats. If you're going to go, I'd go at night. They've got these big searchlights and they light up, the, they sweep through the city. And Absolutely. you can sit on the deck and you can uh, listen to the uh, narration or you can just ignore it and enjoy the view. Now, if you're willing to spend a little more money, since, you know, you're in Paris, the grand capital of France, the city of lights, um, especially if you want to have that romantic with your significant other, and there's a company called Les Yachts de Paris, the Yachts of Paris, and they are using some very old little boats. Well, you can fit, you know, still 30 people, uh, but it's really for dinner cruise. A dinner cruise. Yes. That would be an elegant um, evening. I forgot the name of the chef who is doing the food. It's really quite famous. But the view would be incredible. Oh, it's fantastic. The bridges, the, yes. the Notre Dame. And they're oh. using a 1930s boat. Gorgeous. There are many ways to mm. enjoy Paris after dark. Yes, and it's just more exquisite. Arnaud Servignon? Yes. I'll see you in Paris. Arvignon, <laughs> okay. thank you very much. You're welcome. Sur les du vieux Paris De l'amour bohème Daytime delights in the hidden gardens and parks of Paris are next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait, je voyage 
Oui. Oui, oui, c'est je voyage souvent, de temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steve. Wow, you've, you've picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steve. You could travel for years to Paris and still miss the charming gardens and parks that are tucked away all around town and that offer a welcome respite to those in the know. A while back, an article Elaine Sciolino wrote for the New York Times about the hidden gardens of Paris caught our attention. So we called her at her Garden View apartment to fill us in on the little gems she's discovered in her years living in Paris as a foreign correspondent. Paris must be the most celebrated city for American travelers in Europe, and people can go there all their lives and not find some of the magical little corners. Today we're joined by a woman who's lived there for 10 years, writing for the New York Times. Elaine Sciolino wrote an article called The Hidden Gardens of Paris, and she joins us now by phone from Paris to talk about some of the delights, some of the green and, and peaceful delights that you might miss on your next trip to Paris. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. What an exciting article that you wrote in the New York Times, Hidden Gardens of Paris. And uh, people don't realize that. What are there, like 400 parks in the town that people can pop in on? Oh, there's probably now close to 500 garden squares, parks, promenades, elevated railways uh, that can be celebrated and enjoyed and discovered. Now, these don't just happen. You've got leadership in Paris that makes it happen. Uh, tell me how the mayors have contributed to that recently. Well, Jacques Chirac, uh, who was president here for uh, 12 years, when he was mayor of Paris, wanted to uh, expand his power, and he only had a small area to do it in, and he decided to turn Paris green. As the, one of the gardeners of Paris, the guy who's the head of the Jardin des Plantes, said, Chirac was a great lover, so he understood the importance of gardens and uh, hidden spaces in Paris and how romantic it would make the city. You know, for an intense city, I, I guess that makes a lot of sense. You need, just it's a matter of your quality of life and your civilization, you need a little peaceful, shady place with a bench to, to duck around the corner, don't you? Yes, and what people don't realize is, you know, how subversive it is. You really have to learn how to look at these spaces. I mean, for example, you have to go to the Notre Dame. It's the most visited place in Paris. But you come out of Notre Dame, you're, 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 you just need a break. And all you have to do is walk across the street to a hospital called the Hotel Dieu and go in, and it's free, and it's the most wonderful sculpted garden, uh, and it's an oasis of calm. And a few steps away, uh, there's the Square Viviani, which has the oldest tree in the world and also one of the best uh, views of Paris. So now, I've always looked at that Hotel Dieu. It's, a, it's an elegant, classic building, which is a, a historic hospital right there That's right. to the exactly. left of the Notre Dame as you're facing it. That's right. Just walk in. Like, as, and, and you can and, walk as into as that courtyard. you know courtyard. what you're doing. Yes. Yeah, walk in like you know what you're doing. That's Boy, that's a good travel tip. And I would imagine they figure gardens are, are just good medicine. I mean, it's a Absolutely. There's a whole philosophy in French medicine that started centuries ago that you needed gardens to help people to cure. You say a lot of the gardens are, I love this phrase, you called it a celebration of symmetry. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of gardens are very formal, and we Americans have to get used to this idea that there's not very much that's whimsical or wild in many of the Parisian gardens. They're beautifully sculpted. They're beautifully crafted. You've got bushes that are in the shape of cones mm -hmm. or little snakes. And it's, it's a way for us, you know, we Americans who tend to be kind of messy and sloppy tourists, to sort of think elegantly, think in a whole new way. As a matter of fact, there are nice gravel stretches with, with elegant benches that you sit on and you look at the lawn. I think there's a joke in Paris that the definition of a split second is the time it takes for you to step on the lawn and for a policeman to blow his whistle. Yes, but you know what's happened? I lived here in the late um, 1970s and early 1980s, and many of the public lawns were off-limits to walkers, and now most of them are okay to sit on. So oh, that's great. the lawns of Paris have become <laughs> great picnic areas. Oh, I love it. You go to the Luxembourg Garden, and it's just a festival of families and lovers and retired people and children chasing balloons. By the way, I'm speaking with uh, Elaine Ciolino, and Elaine writes for the New York Times. Uh, Elaine, when we're talking about these gardens, a lot of times I get almost uh, a scene that reminds me of a Monet painting, and then I realize that a lot of the gardens were actually created in the 19th century during this Impressionist time. It's no wonder that you recreate some of these romantic, Impressionistic scenes even today when you enjoy the gardens of Paris. You mentioned how 
a garden it can be a place where you see kids with balloons and people hanging out and entertaining themselves. And a garden like the Luxembourg Gardens, which we think we know, changes its complexion depending on the time of the day. I mean, it would be very gauche to go jogging in the Luxembourg Gardens in the afternoon <laughs> because everybody's going to be all dressed up and made up and watching you sitting in those those wonderfully metal benches. You've got to go in the morning when all the French joggers are out if you really want to fit in. This is very sensitive, very important, and something you've learned, I guess, from living in Paris for 10 years, that there's an appropriate time to go jogging. When you think about the elegant gardens and the formal gardens, like Luxembourg Garden, you also have the flip side of that, um, and you, you write about a square carpeau, for instance. Well, the square carpeau is, is less a wild garden than it is a very, what they call, populaire or working-class garden. So if, if your listeners want to feel as if they really belong in Paris, they should go to the 18th arrondissement, which is near where Montmartre is, and the Sacré-Cœur, and go to this square where where the statues are sometimes a little bit broken, but you can go and pretend you're French. You can go there with a sandwich and hang out with real French people. You're not going to find any tourists there. I I call it the anti-Luxembourg. I love that. Because it's, it's... it's normal people, not people dressed up to be seen and, and, and see. Yeah, the anti-Luxembourg, and, and that square is spelled C-A-R-P-E-A-U-X, and you've got some of those um, permanent outdoor ping-pong tables there, and, and just it's a place where the, the people who live in, probably who live in apartments and small flats, go to have a little bit of a yard for their families. And that's why these squares were built. They were built as sort of gardens or outdoor living rooms for normal people. Elaine, thinking of connecting with Parisian village life, the more you know Paris, the more you see it as a bunch of neighborhoods and so on. Each arrondissement has its own personality and and pride. Talk a little bit about the village life you might find in these small hidden gardens, puppet shows, concerts, bulls, and so on. Well, again, I mean, I live in, I have to confess, in a very chic area of Paris, the 7th arrondissement near the Rodin Museum and near the um, the Bon Marché department store. Um, what you have to do is go to some place like the Luxembourg Garden. Go early and see that if you play your cards right, your kids are going to be able to ride a pony. You're going to be able to play tennis. There's going to be some kind of musician or concert, and it's all free, which is another aspect of the gardens of Paris. You come out of... Um, the Louvre, or you come out of Sacré-Cœur, and you don't want to be with a lot of tourists. You don't want to be just piled on and with just too many people. And so gardens are refuges where you can hang out for free. And sometimes you can find nobody. For example, one of my favorite places, and it's a secret place, and I hated to even mention it in my article, is something called the Valley Suisse, the Swiss Valley. Mm. It's right across the street from the Grand Palais Museum. You can't find it, though, unless you know it's there, because you have to look at this marble frieze and know that there are staircases that lead downstairs to this very hidden space where you'll find these wonderful park benches and waterfalls and ducks. So it's a little escape, a Swiss valley in the middle of Paris, just off the Champs-Élysées. That's right. And uh, and I I have to confess that the the rocks and the little uh, footbridge are fake. They're made out of concrete. But they look real, and it's the coolest place. It's the coolest secret garden in Paris. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Janet's on the phone in Easton, Maryland. Janet, thanks for your call. Hi. Elaine, I'm a gardener, and uh, we are going back to Paris pretty soon. We have seen some of the major gardens, the Luxembourg Gardens and Tulieri, and I was wondering if um, you could make some suggestions of some gardens in the Marais which is the Jewish area, or the Latin Quarter, and Belleville. Last year we were in the Marais, and we did stumble upon a garden that was outside of the, I believe it was the Paris Museum there in the Marais. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite one in the Marais, the Musée Carnavalet, the Museum yes. of Paris. Uh-huh. Are there any other small gardens Well, in talk the about that garden for a minute. It sounds really interesting. Yes. Well, that's... That's an extraordinary garden because the physical setting is so beautiful, and right. uh, it's it's got wonderful arches, and it really is an oasis of calm with wonderfully curved bushes that make you feel as if they're going to be moving. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and it's so wonderful to come out of that museum, which is a very dense museum on the city of Paris, and to be in this extraordinary space. It just is very calming, and we walked through the Marais, and uh, of course we were in the Place des Vosges. Well, you got the two best ones. (laughs) Yeah, and it was a Sunday morning, and it was early, and we just enjoyed just sauntering, you know, through some of the the side streets. And are there any other small gardens in the Marais? You know, the Marais is one of the areas, I have to tell you, that's most garden-free. Okay. It's one of the oldest neighborhoods in Paris, so the buildings Mm. are very dense and right on top of each other. And I sometimes Mm -hmm. feel... I have to get away from the Marais to mm-hmm. uh, really uh, escape. Okay. I mean, I would urge you to take you a walk from the Marais and go over to uh, the Jardin Tino Rossi, which has the most wonderful sculptures. It's right on okay. the Seine River. And go take tango and salsa lessons for free on Sunday afternoons. Okay. It, because it blends everything. You've got wonderful plantings and extraordinarily diverse trees and foliage just set with these wonderful sculptures and then these this sort of movable group of french people come and they picnic there and um and everybody dances so this is tango lessons for free on sunday mornings it's usually sunday afternoon and what Um, what is the name of the garden again elaine tino rossi tino rossi how do you spell that elaine r-o-s-s-i it's actually mentioned in my article and um there's a wonderful website called Paris Walking Tours that will also give you a guide to some of the parks and gardens in Paris. Janet, thanks for your call. All right. Well, thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Boy, I'll, I'll tell you, in the Marais, just to enjoy the sandbox there in the Place des Vosges with the local families coming and playing, and that is a delightful thing. Absolutely. It's and, just... and then there's that, uh, what is the Maison Sully or nearby? Yes. Where you go into yes. the garden of this elegant mansion, and they've got the concrete or the stone frame of a rose window from a church down in the garden. And you can put your family and your friends in the different spaces defined by the tracery of the rose window and take a photograph. It's one of my favorite photographs in Paris. Now, you see, I didn't know that. So you see how Paris is a place of (laughs) constant discovery? It is. I can hardly (laughs) wait to get back. We have Stuart on the line in Boise, Idaho. Stuart, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Hello, and hello, Elaine. Hi. Uh, Comment and a question. Last year, after we finished our uh, tour, ending up in, in Paris, my wife and I, been a few extra days, and one of the days we walked up to Parc Monceau, definitely not one of the small parks, but we had some artwork from 1982, and one of those pieces of artwork had a, was Parc Monceau, and it had a, a picture of this very sculpted tree, and we said, let's go see if we can find it. We walked through, and we actually found it. I mean, it was oh really gosh. clear that that was, it was amazing that we found it. We took a picture of it. It looks great. But we also noticed that that park really seems to be broken up into several areas. So even though it's a huge park, it seems like small parks. Can you comment on that, or are there other parks, or is that common, or what? Well, one of the reasons some of the parks have that kind of intimate feel of you know, a, a living outdoor apartment is that parts of parks sometimes once belonged to a private home, so that they were sort of blended afterwards. But there's also the sense of wanting to have some intimacy in even the big parks, so that a park like the Parc Monceau a park like the, the Jardin des Plantes, have secret hideaways. And that's what's so much fun about Discovery, is that you can walk through a big park, and unless you really know that you should go you know, up the hill and find the pergola or down into the ground and through the tunnel and find the secret place, uh, which is the best place in Paris to kiss, you, you miss out on a lot. It almost sounds like Paris parks through the back door. Stuart, there's a book, I think, cooking up there. Thanks for your well, call. Well, not only that, but the <laughs> other thing you need to tell your listeners is that, you know, there are places where there's one of my favorite little parks where there you can get a free toilet, which if you play your cards right, I'm going to tell you where it is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elaine. Thank you, Rick. Stuart, thanks for your call. I'm Rick Bye-bye. Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Elaine Ciolino, and we're talking about the hidden gardens of Paris, getting a little more intimate look at French culture, and French beautiful urban spaces. Elaine, let's just finish off with, you mentioned the best place to kiss in Paris. Uh, There's a place you wrote about in your article in the Jardin des Plantes. Take us to that spot where you think is the most romantic little corner in Paris. Well, if you go to the Jardin des Plantes, from the outside, it just looks like a vast open space. So you've got to know that there is a place called the Alpine Valley. 
you have to descend, you have to go through a tunnel, and when you go through on the other end, you'll find this flowery area with a craggy stream, and it, it really is a wonderful place where you can have your private kiss. Um, I discovered it because the director of the Jardin des Plantes took me there, and he was he's this very romantic type who said, uh, you know, he, he grew up, his mother had been a concierge in the neighborhood, and so he grew up, he learned how to walk there. He also met his wife there. So for him, finding the romantic spots in his garden is a very special sort of um, task. Elaine, thanks for giving us a, an intimate look at a at an underappreciated dimension of the City of Light, Paris. Thank you. Merci beaucoup et à bientôt, j'espère. All right. Since we recorded our first interview with Elaine Cialino, she's written a book about how the French play the game of life. It's called La Seduction, and it's just out now in a French-language edition as well. We have links to additional travel with Rick Steves' appearances from both Elaine Cialino and Arnaud Savignon with more tips for enjoying Paris in the radio archives at ricksteves.com. Next time you're enjoying a quiet moment in a Parisian garden or savoring any little getaway that inspires you, write a poem. There's a link for you to send us your haiku about your travels. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here are a few from our listeners we thought you might enjoy. Sue Tomlin of Mount Vernon, Illinois, sent us this haiku she wrote about something she experienced in Paris. Two girls help us out. Language barriers overcome. Stereotypes gone. This is from Lise in Puyallup, Washington. Strolling Paris streets, dreamlike, minus the blisters, metro tomorrow. And Crash Brown from Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, sent us these haiku about his train travels in Europe. Night train rocks gently, cuddled in Couchette's womb. Good wine sips easy. Rocketing along, Destination, new, unseen. Thoughts buzzing, unslept. Lover close, eyes lit. Vacation is release. Far away, the place. Next, we broaden our sense of romance and embrace the world and what it has to teach us. While Richard Weiss once actually had a brief love scene with Brooke Shields in the movie Endless Love, His real passion is in sparking our interest in exploring, understanding, and protecting the natural world. From archaeological digs to mountain climbs, Richard joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves to whet our appetite for adventure. Since his father was the first person ever to fly solo across the Pacific, it should be no surprise that Richard Weiss developed a taste for scientific adventure at a young age. In fact, he became the youngest person ever to serve as president of the celebrated Explorers Club in New York. Today, his Saturday morning ABC TV show called Born to Explore features Richard sharing his love of exploration all over the world. He's also hosting a new BBC and Discovery Channel series about the hottest places on the planet. It's called Hell on Earth. And Richard joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about his latest pursuits. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. What is the Explorers Club? Well, the Explorers Club is a scientific organization that was started in 1904, at that time by Arctic explorers trying to establish the northernmost point or the North Pole. But uh, subsequently, the, the club has expanded, and its members range from the first person to the North Pole, the first person to the South Pole, the first person on Everest, the first person to the deepest point in the ocean. And even my own father was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean. So it's a, it's a scientific organization which has to do with the field scientists, space, geology, geography. But you have to have something that distinguishes you. You just can't like science and join. That, that's right. You have to have contributed to these particular field sciences in some sort of broad sense. So whilst it may sound very interesting that somebody climbs Mount Everest, that in and itself 
would not necessarily qualify you to be a member, whereas somebody who studies butterflies, say, in Central Park, would. Okay. And you climbed Mount Everest with a medical expedition. The medical expedition was actually run by some emergency room doctors who were trying to figure out why so many people die of hypoxia when they go into an emergency room. And they found that the best way to simulate that particular condition was at altitude. So they took about 250 people and all different ages, and they brought them up Everest, and they put us on bikes, treadmills, all sorts of things. I wasn't on, on the summit team, but I was up there pretty high wow. up on a, a bicycle. Yeah, and they, they run you until you're pretty much exhausted. So it's, it's a little tougher at altitude because you don't get your breath back right away. So they've established a, basically an athletic club at, at what altitude? Well, they, again, tested people all the way from about 14,000 feet uh, to the summit of Everest. Uh, the majority of the participants in that went only to about 18,000, 19,000 feet, which is still pretty high. And what is hypoxia? Hypoxia is a loss of oxygen in your blood supply. So when people typically go into an emergency room, the most common cause of death is lack of oxygen in their blood or huh. to some uh, vital organ. And it very much mirrors the conditions on Mount Everest or other high altitude. So this is a sake of science, not trying to get people to climb better, but taking knowledge that you gain from an extreme environment and bringing it back to where it can actually save lives or, or benefit mankind. And looking back on that, was that goal reached? What, what did you learn that helped people? Well, one of the things that I learned that is you just can't look across a room and say, you would do well at altitude or you wouldn't right. and you're an athlete and you would do well. So they can't identify people with hypoxia. And because the, uh, the amount of information from this particular study is so great, they're still studying it. But the goal of science is just to keep pushing the ball forward. So you were in the Yucatan with, a, with another group tagging jaguars. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, that was actually run by Duke University. And more and more with uh, wildlife management, people are having to not necessarily say, here's a huge piece of land, you know, let the jaguars run free. They actually have to start looking at what's their natural range because the tendency in science is to make a rectangle and say, okay, this is a bear preserve. This is a jaguar preserve. So what we were doing is that we were putting satellite collars to look at the exact range. Mm. So if a park had to have a little more here and a little less there, they could do that. This is more and more the way science is going forward. But the interesting thing about that trip is you're hacking your way through the jungles of the Yucatan and, and you're coming onto like Mayan burial mounds that you know no one has seen because they're so overgrown. And this isn't so far from, you know, the U.S., that's amazing. I was in the Yucatan at a Tulum, the resort, and then decided to go yeah, into the interior. Sure. And you climb up to the top of one of these overgrown pre-Columbian ruins, and you look out, and there's this mossy, lush, vast expanse of jungle vegetation, and then bumps all across the, the landscape. And those bumps are other overgrown pre-Columbian ruins. It's just fascinating mix of lush nature and rich history. Well, we were just in Belize filming in a holy Mayan community, which is a story unto itself, in that I didn't realize that you still had communities that were 100% Mayan. I thought somehow they'd all been integrated into Mexican or Belize society, but you have holy 100% Mayan communities. But we ran into an archaeologist who was digging something which he reckons is as big as Tulum, because these things just don't get uncovered instantly. A lot has to do with funding people, you know, how you approach it. This could be an entire lifetime before it's realized to the same level that you were speaking at. Right. So whilst people think that everything has been discovered, there is so much just at our feet that people haven't looked at. You know, I think scientists, whether they're archaeologists or people that are taking jaguars, realize that. It's exciting to, to kind of factor that into your travels. I'm speaking with Richard Weiss, and Richard's the host of a TV show called Born to Explore, and he's also a traveling scientist. And uh, Richard, reading about your work is just... It's exciting to think we can add an extra dimension to our, our travels by being tuned in to opportunities that scientists could have while traveling. Now, you're the host of a TV show called Born to Explore, and you do this work as a scientist. How does that intersect? You know, some of my contacts from being president of the Explorers Club have helped putting this TV show together. But I think the biggest thing that's helped me is being a father. I look at the world differently than I might have when I was single. And I think by taking some of my personal testosterone out of travel or adventure and just taking the time to look around and speak to people who live on the ground or even some of the locals who are the best biologists, 
I think it's added a dimension to how I look at the world and hopefully Born to Explore will convey that message. Wow. So now you're a father now. You weren't a father earlier in your career. How has being a father shaped you know, your passion for travel from, from a safety point of view, from a stewardship of the environment point of view? Uh, how does that affected your work? Well, I think all of the above. I have little kids. I have a daughter three and a half and two twin boys a year and a half. So it's not like when I was single, when I would travel and it didn't matter whether I was out for 10 days or two weeks or three weeks, you know, it was, it was all sort of a, um, jungle party, but you know, I have kids at home and obviously you miss your kids, but I also realized that when I travel, I look at children in communities a little differently. I was just in an Inuit community in Arviat in Canada. And, you know, somehow I look at kids differently or the conditions they grow up or simple things that what makes them happy or, or satisfied or even people and I think that uh, my respect for mothers have changed since uh, I've become a husband and a father. I, I look at the burden or the difficulties that many women have around the world. You know, that is a very good point because I think a lot of people who kind of fancy themselves as tuned into feminist issues or feminist crusaders might neglect looking into the fact that for the average woman, her lot in life is simply to walk for water. And when you travel to the developing world, that sort of hits you right in the face. Yeah, you know, while filming Born to Explore, we've seen this on many occasions. And I remember going into Ethiopia, into the Afar region. This is the hottest place on earth. And, oh, it was so heartbreaking. You run into pregnant women who are dehydrated, and they're just not getting the same care as we would. And the other aspect is that any problem you think you have in life, Mm. and I know that right now is a difficult time for many Americans, it is so minute compared to some of the problems that I've seen around the world with people who lack just the conditions that we wouldn't even think are basic. So I think just by virtue of a lottery of life as an American, I feel very fortunate. But on the other hand, I look at communities around the world and somehow I sometimes see more happiness. And these are people who don't necessarily have a lot in life, but they are surrounded by people who know them and, and care for them. And that's something to be learned from other communities. You were in Africa climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with your team, and you discovered 29 new life forms. Can you tell us what your agenda was and why this matters from a scientific point of view? Well, I tell you, my agenda is always to have travel with a nobility of purpose. And I've climbed Kilimanjaro many times. I, I started there when I was 11 years old. I think I've climbed it about 18 times. And I've done quite a few different scientific studies on Kilimanjaro. For example, I saw the movie An Inconvenient Truth, and Kilimanjaro became emblematic of shrinking glaciers. And I thought to myself, you know, no one has ever even put a weather station on Kilimanjaro to actually study this. And along with people I was leading up Kilimanjaro, we established the first two weather stations ever on Kilimanjaro. And, you know, not to go against what Al Gore is saying in his movie, but that really wasn't the full story. Yes, global warming is certainly happening, but in the case of Kilimanjaro, as with so many other places, when you take forests away at its base, you have less rain and snow going to the mountain. And that was really the reason the glacier was uh, receding. And on another case, I decided that it could be an interesting place to search for new life forms. And so we went to the summit into the crater, which is still on the warm side because Kilimanjaro is a dormant, not extinct volcano. And uh, we look for something called an extremophile. And an extremophile is an animal or an organism that lives in an extreme environment. And certainly on the equator, you have intense sunlight or ultraviolet light. And so the organisms there display certain principles or properties. And so the principles or properties that are being applied from this particular discovery will affect people's uh, house paint or car paint so it wouldn't fade necessarily in sun. Sometimes you'll find certain microorganisms that only will grow where there's gold or diamonds. Or in Ethiopia, I know we, we discovered some stuff that forces plants to use more photosynthesis than water, which could have great agricultural benefits in the future. So it's not necessarily science for the sake of science, which sometimes is fun, right. but it's always with a nobility of purpose and hoping that the knowledge that we pass on to the next person will benefit society as a whole. I think a lot of people don't realize uh, something as mundane as making paint that won't fade actually comes from scientific breakthroughs, and you can get those on Mount Kilimanjaro. Well, you can get those other places. We did uh, something, and this was when I was president of the Explorers Club. We went into Central Park, and the whole idea was to do something called a 24-hour bio blitz, where you send in 
500 students and scientists into a, a finite area like Central Park, and you look to see if you could catalog every form of life that you can within 24 hours, and we discovered over 200 new forms of life in Central Park. 200 new forms. What, what do you mean by new forms? Well, there are, for example, 1.5 approximately million organisms that have a name to it, you know, dog, human, right. what have you, all the way down <laughs> to organisms. And they estimate that there may be 100 million organisms on Earth. So that means that we only know about 1.5% wow. of all life forms. So things are constantly going extinct or, or forming that we have no idea of. And so uh, this was actually more than for scientific reasons, just to get people interested in where they live or the life forms that are created. Even when I came into uh, New York recently, I was in Grand Central Station and everyone's looking around and half a million people walk through those doors of Grand Central Station. But I look down at the floor and because it's limestone, you know, I see all these fossils in there. So who knows what you could discover right even, even in Grand Central Station. It's sort of being turned on to the, just to be aware of, of that, that that's an option. You wrote about cross-country skiing to the North Pole, and uh, I would think there's no life forms up there, is uh, it? Absolutely are. There absolutely are on the are. North Pole? We were stalked by a polar bear. You have uh, polar bears up into the high Arctic, ring seals. And the thing that we're finding more and more about life is that when I was born... I was told there were nine planets and that life existed above freezing and below boiling. And we're finding out that life is way more robust and it hmm. exists in a far greater range. So that life exists just about everywhere. It finds a way. And the paradigms of what we thought we knew are constantly changing. So the North Pole was a great experience for dealing with extreme cold temperatures all the time. And I don't recommend it for people who aren't good <laughs> in the cold. But, um, you know, also there's life forms even in the basin, in the water of the North Pole that we're just learning about. Richard Weiss is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His scientific adventures are featured in his book, Born to Explore. And he hosts a TV show by the same name. His website is richardweiss.com. That's spelled W-I-E-S-E. -E. Richard, when you were at the North Pole, how did you know you were there and, and what was it like? Well, it's interesting you say that because you're skiing along on very flat, frozen ocean, and many times you're completely by yourself, and it's very difficult to tell navigation. We have GPS units that will tell you exactly when you're on the North Pole, and the North Pole's constantly moving, at least on the surface because of the ice. But the real interesting thing is there are other people coming to the North Pole. So when I went, other groups were approaching the same area from a different direction. Uh, Prince Albert was there the day before I was. There were Polish guys who were trying to be the first people to parachute at the North Pole. There was mm -hmm. someone trying to scuba dive. So suddenly you go from being alone to a, a somewhat circus atmosphere up there. You didn't ski from Greenland all the way there. Did you drop in by airplane 20 miles away, or, or how do you ski? Uh, a little further than that, uh, there's a, a floating Russian ice station called Ice Station Borneo that's, I think, two degrees south okay. of uh, the North Pole. <laughs> so technically it's 120 miles, but because the ice is constantly shifting around, you end up doing a lot longer uh, distance. And just to give you a perspective, I don't think the temperature ever got above minus 25 and remember, you're not going into a hut or a heated thing. You're just going into a sleeping bag and a tent at night. Can you ever be actually comfortable on this experience? You know, uh, I have a great deal of respect for Arctic explorers back in the old days because yeah. you never can get away from the cold. You have to eat a lot just to stay warm. Whenever you have any kind of sweat component, as soon as you stop, you start shaking. There were times when I did crawl into my sleeping bag and, you know, sort of pulled it over my head. But most of the time, I, I just just never quite could get comfortable. That's partly to do with my inexperience in, right. in the higher Arctic, but it's a tough environment. Well, thank goodness for modern gear, I bet. I understand you're also doing a dinosaur dig in Alberta, and that relates to your TV show, Born to Explore. Tell us about the dig. Well, we were up in uh, Alberta, Canada, which is a stunning, off-the-charts, beautiful place, you know, from the Rockies to the prairies to Badlands. And they have one of the most, what they think is going to be one of the most significant dinosaur discoveries ever right there. And typically you would expect a dinosaur bed to be in the desert, Mongolia, right. Wyoming, you know, um, Patagonia. And this is a heavily forested area, but the amount of fossils we were finding was off the charts. We would be in an area, say 50 feet by 50 feet, and you maybe find a hundred different dinosaurs there. And they've done little probes around the area, and there's football field-sized uh, discoveries all over the place. 
a very famous Canadian paleontologist, Phil Curry, is running the operation. It's unlike any other discovery I've seen. It's actually ruined me forever going dinosaur digging again just because of it's so how good, many things mean? they were finding. What if a skeptic just says, well, so what? What's, what's the value of a dinosaur dig? Because a lot of resources are going into that, I would imagine. Well, it's all private resources. But, you know, I, th- I think that you really want to understand history, where you came from, where life is going. Yeah, you know, people could say, so what about a lot of things? Um, you know, why send someone to the moon? Why do anything? And if we had that attitude as as a European-American, I'd maybe still be, you know, sitting in Europe and never come to America. Or when the first wave of people that came out of Africa, they might have said, hey, what's the point of leaving Tanzania or <laughs> Ethiopia or wherever That's the first That's the spirit of exploration, from? isn't it? Well, I think curiosity. Look, you're a traveler. You know that um, there was always one person who sat around a fire and said, I wonder what's on the other side of that lake or on top of that mountain. And I think humans are innately curious and if you're a curious person, you'll find there's so much delight in this world. And that could be going to someplace beautiful like Alberta. It could be going uh, to Africa. It could be going to your local park and just opening your eyes and, and seeing all the wonderful things and magic that still exists in this world. This is so fascinating to me. And it, it occurs to me that a scientist can learn things on the road that he or she couldn't learn in a lab. What can travel teach a scientist that a lab cannot? Well, in general... People who live amongst whatever you're just studying, for example, an Aboriginal person in the Northern Territory, an Inuit, an Eskimo, these people become greater experts on the biology or habits of animals than scientists. Scientists, you know, will parachute in for weeks, months. You know, these people who study it day and night. So I think what I'm learning and scientists are realizing that the greatest experts and tourists can learn from these people too are the locals, the locals who live amongst a polar bear, a crocodile, a chimpanzee, a gorilla. Richard Weiss, host of Born to Explore, thanks a lot and happy travels. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Cheryl Harris for reading today's travel haiku and to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help today. Our theme music is produced by Jerry Frank, and you can find links to our guests, plus audio archives and more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalog, and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.